Thanks for joining us today. We have a brand new book with us by M.J. Granberry, and it's called Play the Hand You Are Dealt, a Naked City Novella. Um, and we're super excited. This is awesome. We haven't had her on the podcast before. This is a new author for us. She's in Kendall Unlimited, so right away, I love her. <laughs> so I think that's awesome. Um, her book bio it, it is amazing. Did you read it? No. I don't know if you saw it earlier when we were looking through so I'm going to read her book bio right now because it's, it's so great and it's a great way to kick it off. MJ Granberry is first and foremost an insatiable reader. I just love that right away. <laughs> that she's like, hey, I love it. Among her favorite things are classic fairy tales, smutty books where characters have heart, old lady sweaters, preferably chunky knit, gift baskets, giving, not receiving, charcuterie trays, green olives, smoked cheese, and Genoa salami. She is true Las Ve- She's a true Las Vegas native, the one in Nevada, not New Mexico. And to answer the most frequent asked questions about growing up in Sin City, no, she doesn't live in a hotel. No, she has never been a stripper, although she knows some. Prostitution is absolutely legal in Clark County, Las Vegas. And what happens in Vegas does indeed stay in Vegas. MJ earned a degree in words and stories, and after 15-plus years of doing everything other than writing, she penned her first novel, giving a voice to characters that are strong yet fragile, that are sometimes uncomfortably real, that express love in the dirtiest ways with the sweetest sentiments and honesty and dreams come true. But I just love that. I love that, too. I know. I was like, home run. That was, that's just the best book. It makes me love her right away. And she has her picture on her Amazon page. She is gorgeous. 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 I saw the picture and I was like, holy shit. I'm feeling a little bit intimidated right now. I really want to impress her. But, um. Yeah, so thanks, MJ Granberry, for being with us today. And uh, the book she's brought with us, like I said, is called Play the Hand You Were Dealt. It's a Naked City novella. You can actually go get the ebook right now if you don't want to wait for it. But she's been awesome enough to share the audio with us right now. I'll tell you in a little bit about more she's got coming up. So um, this week, we're going to read some awesome lady listener emails. I love lady so listener emails. I know. It's my favorite. I never know what's Instant. coming. I'm going to laugh. Sometimes I cry. I know. I know. <laughs> It always makes me feel good, though. So um, I pulled a couple of old ones, and then we had a couple of new ones. So um, one, of, a couple of the old ones, I wondered if maybe they had been read before. So I tried to read through them because one of them I pulled, and I, I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, I've, I've, we've read that one. Like, it was one that I didn't. I think maybe, like, Tessa had pulled from a long time ago or something. Yeah. It's from 2019, so it never got, like put in the right folder so I'm like going back through to make sure so if this is a repeat I didn't know so it's new to me (laughs) (laughs) so experience it with me today lady listeners so this one's entitled love read me romance high school sweethearts and Ruby Dixon all right this starts out Leah, Mel, and Tessa. First, I'm a new listener and love y'all. I've always enjoyed reading your books, but the podcast takes it to an all-new level of fangirl for me. 
I'm married to my high school sweetheart. It really happens. I've loved hearing stories about this from lady listeners. Frank and I will celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary in 2020. We met in Germany where we were going to high school in 1985. Our dads were both in the Air Force. We came to Florida after graduation. By chance, both our dads had orders to Florida, but different bases. We split for 18 months for what now seems like silly reasons, and I almost married the wrong person. One day, Frank randomly, fate, ran into my dad. He was a student at the university my dad worked at. We reconnected and then got married in 1990. We are still madly in love and best friends. Sometimes while I'm reading, he already knows it's a romance, lol. He'll ask, anything good? Yes, I say. Then he asks, anything we need to try? <laughs> My Kindle clatters to the floor before he finishes the sentence. Oh, that's I'm a, horrible. I know. It's the best. I'm attaching pics. Us in high school, our 25th anniversary in Vegas, renewing our vows in a recent one. I love this man. He is my person. Listening this week and so excited about Ruby Dixon season three. Here's why. My husband has never been a reader. This past Christmas, I received two Kindles as a gift. So I set one up for him. I asked him keywords to search and asked my sister to help me find him a series to read. She suggested Ruby Dixon, which is interesting because she's a historical romance reader and loves old 70s paperbacks. See her page at... Oh, she has, she put her sister's page up at page 100 romance on Instagram. I guess she posts up like, uh, that's actually a very smart one to pick for men. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. So I'm going to follow them after this. (laughs) (laughs) It says, anyway, Frank is hooked and now asks me to download books for him all the time. I can't wait to listen to the Ruby Dixon podcast with him. Alicia, AKA her. Oh, she put her Instagram on here absolutely fabulous on instagram it's absolute and an l-e-e fabulous p.s i think read me romance podcast is so fun and i love listening to you all talk about the books talk books for thanks for being so awesome pbs my sister got to meet you all a few years ago at shameless oh my god we had gotten tickets to go there together and ended up not being able to go because i had an unexpected surgery she went and got everyone's autograph for me. I hope we can try again to get together soon so I can meet you all, too. Aww. How freaking sweet is that? I'll have to send you the pictures later. I don't want to show them on here, but they're so freaking sweet, and the two of them, they're so cute. I love high school sweethearts. It's so adorable. I do, too. And I love that they split up for 18 months for what now seems like silly reasons, mm-hmm. you know? And that it was just fate that they ended up back together. Like, how cool is that? Yeah. Like, what a whirlwind. I love love. (laughs) This one's entitled, thank you, dear lady podcasters. I'll admit I'm not a religious listener of the podcast. I tune in when I can or when something specifically interests me. And I'm always, always, always behind. Listen, Samantha, it's okay. (laughs) I have been slowly working on Evangeline Anderson's week. That's a good one. (laughs) I am finally on Friday and I don't want it to end. I know how you feel. (laughs) Thank you for introducing me to Evangeline. I already downloaded several of her books and cannot wait to read her sci-fi books. I simply love when I can combine my love of sci-fi with my love of romance. I also wanted to reach out and thank you three lovely ladies for your beautiful and inclusive discussions. So many people do not realize how beautiful the romance community is, how open and honest it is. I personally have severe depression. I was diagnosed years ago, but only started therapy recently. 
I have a very hard time explaining to my therapist why romance is an escape, while it make, why it makes me feel better. Her opinion is that romance novels are fake and give unrealistic expectations. To be fair, she isn't that far off the mark, but I try very hard to make her understand there is so much more to romance than the unrealistic nature. There is an escape. There is a community of amazing women building up each other. There are so many subgenres with romance. I mean, without the romance community, I never would have met my three best friends. Anyway, the real reason for my email is to thank Leah and Mel for their discussion on book covers. I am admittedly a cover whore. If the cover doesn't interest me, I will not even click the book. The title and cover have to draw me in, in which I realize may be leaving a lot of great books behind. I was a blogger for a short period of time, and I was in charge of reading through the emails that came from the PR companies. One of the signups was for this new and, to me, very interesting sports romance. It was different and intrigued me. As a blogger, very rarely did I ever see a cover first, and you have to understand I'm not a blurb reader. only ever read blurbs after the cover draws me in. In this case, the blurb drew me in. The day, the saw, the day I saw the cover, I was shocked, for lack of a better word. It was awful. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope she doesn't say who it is. It was awful, and each book in the series had a similar, ter- similarly terrible cover. <laughs> Hold on. I never learned who designed the covers, but they just didn't have any pizzazz to them. They were boring, and the cover models were not attractive. The saddest part, all four books were amazingly written. It's by far one of my favorite series, but if I was searching for a book as a reader as opposed to a blogger, I never would have found them. So many authors, new and existing, are always looking for advice. I think Mel and Leah nailed it on the head when discussing cover cover designs and fonts. You need to rub up your our imagination from the moment we spot the book. I'm personally a very visual person, and I need a cover to speak to me. Thank you so much for taking the time to read my email and keep doing you. All three of you are amazing and have introduced me to some great authors. I recently finished Tessa Bailey's Runaway Girl and was just blown away. I made a promise to myself this year to read new-to-me authors, and you are all helping with that. I simply adore you ladies and love listening to your banter. Hugs and kisses, Samantha. God, it just reminds you how important covers are. So important. Oh, my God. Like, it's and it's something, too, like... I feel like sometimes it comes really easy and then other times it is just a slog. Yeah. Like it's awful and we can't ever like nail the image or the car. And it's just like, you know, and I'm the worst about it. I'll just be like, whatever. I just give up. You do it. (laughs) I don't know because I don't know what I want and I can't figure it out. So I'm just like, just put something on it. Yeah. I, it'll be fun. Sometimes it's really frustrating it and sometimes it's easy. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's been a couple of times where we knew right away home run on the cover. We're like, oh, fuck, this is it. Like, coach. Yeah. Thick. You know, like, or even, oh, shit, what's the one? The sheltered. Yeah. That cover. I love that cover. The second I saw it, I was just like, boom. That, that's probably one of my favorite covers we've done. God, it's gorgeous and that came because i was scrolling through instagram and i saw a guy holding a girl like this it was like some ad or something and he was holding the girl in this way that was just so fucking intimate so we actually told our photographer friend that sarah that makes covers we were like can you please take a picture like this we need this and she's like yeah i got you and she just boom sent it to us and we're like this is it (laughs) We're like, perfect, nailed it, done. And like, that's one of those things, like, you know, it's just, yeah, I hate that. She's right, though. There's a lot of books that I wouldn't have picked up based on the cover. Yeah. 
you know, and and maybe we are all missing out on I it, remember so. reading a series, God, I think last year, it was a um, historical, and mm-hmm. the cover was just terrible, but the books were so good. They were like, yeah, raunchy, dirty, and I'm like, nobody's going to buy these because the covers, know, and I'm like, I think I these know. are like some of her best books. Damn, I hate that. And it's like, there's no nice way to say that without coming across as a know-it-all bitch. And most authors aren't open to that sort of criticism. Like, they might be like, oh, man, I really wish the heroine would have done this. And they were probably like, oh, I can probably add that in or something like that, you know. But most authors, especially the ones that make their own covers, do not want an opinion. Like, that's just, that, it's just the way it is, you know, because, you know, in, in the past, I've said a couple of things to people like, are you sure? Like, you know, that you can hire somebody to do that. And they're like, no, my covers are great. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel it out. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just going to step back. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, oh, don't you think maybe? No. Oh, okay. Okay. There's okay. only a few okay, people gotcha. <laughs> that I'm like, that's terrible. Why did, or like, <laughs> no. what did I just read? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the fuck you didn't. So, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, it's such a fine line because, like I said, there's not a ton of authors that create their own covers that want that kind of feedback. But, you know, sometimes it takes an outside person saying, you got to change these up to, to get people to read a series, yeah. you know. So, if you're an author and you're listening, don't be afraid to change them out. Yeah, people put new covers on their stuff all the time. All the time, Yeah. All right, this one says, romance novel that changed my life. Oh, this is from Rochelle. I didn't even know it was from her. I love this. She sent this in 2019. Oh, <laughs> um, She said, I'm not sure if you want a story from a reader who also happens to be an author and one on the podcast to boot. She's like tooting her own horn in this. It. Rochelle, you bitch, I love you. But I couldn't share, I couldn't not share this story just in case you do. Sweet Dreams, my first Chris and Ashley book, changed my life in ways I never imagined. I discovered K.A. That's everybody calls Chris and Ashley yeah. K.A. I discovered K.A. in late March 2012 and went on to read 35 of her Ooh. books that year. Mind you, she Rochelle my, reads the fastest I've ever seen she's the, a person. Yeah, she's the fastest reader I've ever met in my life. You give her a 500-page book and she's like, oh, I'll give it back to you in an mm-hmm. hour. Her and uh, Mel Jean. Yeah. Mel Jean's the same way. Fucking fast-ass readers. Um, anyway, so she sparked my interest in self-publishing, which led to a conversation I had with my mom in January 2013. My mom is the person who's responsible for me falling in love with romance novels. And in the first place, since I started swiping them from her shelves when I was a tween. Anyways, I was dealing with some radical life changes at that time, as well as helping my mom with the 11-month process it took to get her placed on the transplant list. Writing had always been a dream of mine, and when I mentioned self-publishing to my mom, who'd written a few historical romances back in the day, which were never published, she was excited about something for the first time in too long. I know. With the fear that the call from the transplant team would never come hanging over our heads, we made a deal. I'd publish within the year, and she would do her best to hold on to hope and stay as healthy as possible. (laughs) I can't. Oh, Oh my God. Stay as healthy as possible while we waited for the call. 
We were extremely lucky. It came only a couple of months later and her recovery went smoothly. I wrote part of Sucked Into Love from her hospital room and kept my side of the deal when I published Push the Envelope about nine months later. Now I write full-time and I don't think it ever would have happened if I hadn't become completely obsessed with all things Kristen Ashley. That's amazing. Rochelle. Her mom is doing great for the record. Yes, yes. And you know what? Now that I, you were Mm -hmm. saying it over like a Mm -hmm. period or whatever, I just, she has Mm -hmm. a story about um, somebody with a transplant and that's probably oh, where wow. that came from. I don't know why I never connected yeah. that before. And yeah, it is yeah. a great, sweet read and I highly recommend it. It's like called mm-hmm. Bordity or Forting. I'll link it in the, the bio. In the show notes. Okay, um, yeah. But there's so also, make sure you check it's in audio as well. And on okay, Kindle Unlimited. And it's a really well, sweet I just. Book. Yeah, I just love Rochelle, and that I'm so glad I pulled that email. I, I didn't even know it was her. I was just like, I read the, the like the blurb or whatever the the subject line at the top, and I kind of skimmed, and I was like, okay, this, this is good. Da, da, da. I was talking to her today because I guess you know you probably don't know what BravoCon is. It it's uh-uh. where like a huge convention for all the Bravo shows, the Housewife shows. Oh and my god, this tickets, is like your like Comic Con. Yeah, I guess the tickets in 2019 <laughs> sold out, and like three minutes but we said we're both gonna get on and if when they come up if we get them we'll go if not she was like it's that's awesome she's like i was like debating if i should do signings at the end of the year but then i'm like i'm going to i'll go to forever i was like i I love that you agree to that now thanks a lot (laughs) she was saying that she's like i don't know (laughs) <laughs> but then she's like bravo yeah i'll go let's go <laughs> oh, okay yeah i can do that <laughs> i love it all right so um let me tell you a little bit about um mj granberry and the book we have today um play the hand you were dealt again is in um the novella the first novella and the naked city series um the book bio says there is a new player in the naked city and i want it all the money the casinos the power that so few can handle and even less deserve There are obstacles, rules of engagement that limit my action and shorten my reach. But the fates have been shuffled and the cards now dealt. It is time to begin. One treacherous game, seven reluctant players. Destiny will crown one and luck will destroy the others. Let's play. Damn. Like, that is just hot. I love it. That's such a great tease. Like, Mm -hmm. I love it. So... She actually wrote me an email today, which was super sweet. She was talking about, like, her giveaways and all this stuff. And so she said, Play the Henry Redelt novella is an introduction to a new series, Tales of the Naked City. It's the first book in the series. Uh, sorry, the first book in the series will drop this fall. The book trailer and all the info is located on my website, author MJ, and it's J-A-Y, MJ Granberry. Connor, one of the lead protagonists in Play the Hand You Were Dealt, was introduced to readers in my first series. The final book in that series, Exquisitely Yours, will drop July 27th. An exclusive excerpt is available on Book and Main. So if you have Book and Main, go definitely check out MJ Granberry. She's doing an awesome giveaway with us this week. She is doing a signed uh, paperback of Play the Hand You Were Dealt, the book you're going to hear today, and swag stuff, and a $25, or sorry, a $20 gift card to go with all that stuff. So it's really awesome. Make sure you um, check out all the links and everything we're going to put down in the show notes and follow us everywhere on social media and you'll get to see all her good stuff. So we're going to play um, the first installment of Play the Hand You Were Dealt by MJ Greenberry, and we'll see you on the other side. Life is a game. You have to play the hand you were dealt. 
A wise player can play a weak hand and still win the game. Rick Warren Fair game and a sovereign directive. Prologue New Orleans is a unique city. Situated at the mouth of the muddy Mississippi River, its locale is advantageous for some and disastrous for others. Seasonal floods make the soil rich and yields great returns for gardeners, but those same floods have destroyed homes and lives without thought or compunction. The bayous and waterways offer a natural transportation network, but it also hides a plethora of sins. Some secrets are laid to rest in the brackish waters of the marshy outlets, while others hide, lying in wait, for the right person or the right opportunity to present itself. The culture is a menagerie of several different groups that came together in one special place, at one chosen time, to create a unique society comprised of slaves and free folk, clergy and whores, powerful voodoo priestesses and penitent Catholics, and hard-working citizens and even harder-working criminals. In all places, there are evil people, those who exist outside the boundaries of polite society. On Sunday, August 26, 1956, at an old plantation 68 miles outside the city limits, a group of strangers, five men and two women, smartly dressed and unmistakably dangerous, convened to bring a semblance of structure to the chaos of the subterranean crime world that threatened to tear the city apart. Under the shade of magnificent 900-year-old Ainsman oak trees, sipping sweet tea spiked with rum distilled from Louisiana sugarcane, the seven attendees, each a leader of enterprise in their chosen illicit field, formed a pact, one that governed city's criminal enterprise. They called their newly found alliance Le Milieu, a French word translated to the middle in honor of their French forefathers who paved the crooked path. This was their directive. For the betterment of New Orleans, Le Milieu, a group formed out of necessity and forged with intention, was founded to govern the criminal underground and the lawbreakers that inhabit it. We come together, no longer known by our names, but as our monikers pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. We, the agents of this city's sin, commit time, energy, and resources equally to collectively run this city. We have established the following ten directives and one method of challenge. 1. Money rules the world, but it's also the root of all evil. Never let on how much you have, how much you need, what you're willing to do to get it, or how much you'll risk to keep it. 2. Life is an intersecting highway. The person who arrives first has the advantage. Move swiftly with purpose and in silence to make the greatest impact. When strategy doesn't work, violence does. 3. The only ally is yourself. Trust is for the weak. Brother will turn on brother given the right circumstance. 4. Business is sacred. Do not become an addict and do not become a mark. 5. Home is a sanctuary. Business has no place within its boundaries. 
It doesn't matter the request or how urgent. Take it elsewhere. 6. No credit. A man who requires credit will always need it. 7. Keep business separate from your family. Mixing money and blood has never ended well. Choose one successor and groom them in the life. 8. Distance is the key to success. The product you move, the business you run, speaks for itself. You're not the face. You're the man behind the curtain. 9. Law enforcement has a purpose. It's a powerful tool when leveraged. It is also a double-edged sword waiting to impale the man wielding the blade. 10. Consignment is powerful, but deadly. Those who utilize it should do so sparingly. Payment is due on time, every time, regardless of situation or circumstance. Due to the nature of our business, there will always be challenges. For the well-being of our city, challenges are to be resolved civilly. The challenger may request a game of chance, one that exhibits skill and shows character, one that is neither fixed nor grossly skewed. The challenge may come only once from the same challenger, and the winner will take all. It was well after midnight when the five men and two women left their personal vehicles and retreated to their respective corners of the city. Their alliance was unprecedented, and their treaty, although tentative, weathered the test of time. The document stood for the last 63 years, governing times of great prosperity and war. Chapter 1 Lushakal I land the crop dust on a makeshift dirt runway that lies on the edge of an old plantation some 68 miles outside of New Orleans. The white antebellum structure with its dark green shutters, wide lattice windows, an ornate wrought iron railing has seen better days, but in this setting, with the sprawling grounds surrounded by moss-covered aged old oaks, it's quite picturesque. The large pillars of the house come into view as I climb from the cockpit, but I focus on the veranda spanning the entire front of the structure. Even from my position a fair distance away, I can make out the feeble frames of the men and women sociably lounging on thick, padded wicker furniture. And therein lies my problem. Le milieu roughly translates to mean the middle, or in this case, the middle ground, is the organization I was born into, one I was trained to lead. The same one I plan to bring into the 21st century come hell or high water. Sixty years ago, these seven people inconspicuously sipping tea on the porch at sunset were a force to be reckoned with. New Orleans had never seen anything like them in over three hundred years of its existence. Honestly, I doubt it ever will again. History has shown there's no honor among thieves, but mix a little self-interest with a dash of loyalty, and you'd be surprised at the miracles you can work. Many want the New Orleans territory because of its strategic location. Its aquatic thoroughfares offer the perfect routes for shipping, receiving, and old-school Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.-style smuggling. Many contenders have thrown their hats, guns, thugs, and prayers in the ring for a shot at running the Crescent City. I've seen plays come from the sophisticated French Corsica, the Spanish Galassian clan, the Irish mob, Italian mafia, and most recently the Mexican cartels, but none of them have anything on the network built, 
maintained and expanded by Le Milieu. The strength of the organization lies in the diversity of its leaders and their far-reaching influence in specific areas like prostitution, racketeering, theft, and laundering. The beauty of Le Milieu is that all the members are interconnected and somewhat dependent on each other. If one fails, we all fail. If one succeeds, we all succeed. We come together from different factions, finding a common ground to conduct business in a way benefiting the group collectively. Brilliant fucking idea. However, the leaders have grown lazy and morphed into a tired, albeit still moderately successful version of their younger selves. They're happy to reminisce about the good old days instead of grinding to make better ones. Not that I blame them. Their fatigue comes with age and their laziness comes with complacency. It happens to the best of us. But it's now time to hand over the reins to the next generation. To me. I've put in the time, paid my dues, and I've come to collect. Unseen eyes track my movements as I approach the porch. The stairs weighted with mistrust and suspicion heighten my awareness, bringing the gravity of this moment into crystal clarity. It is now or never. I feel no alarm when I catch a glint of metal in the late afternoon sun. The goons are double as security for Carlisle Boudreaux, are hidden somewhere among the Spanish moss and curving oak trees and are packing enough heat to annihilate a small country. Said weapons are undoubtedly aimed in my direction. The Annie, or elders, rarely carry weapons anymore and must be protected. I'd expect no less. Pointedly, I walk down a drive canopied by oak trees, commonly known by the few who have walked this path as Oak Alley, with my arms held down by my sides and my hands clearly visible. See? I can be non-threatening. Never mind the snub-nosed 38 Special secured in my boot, the push dagger tucked neatly under the cuff of my long-sleeved button-down shirt, or the very special surprise strategically placed in the upper branches of the oaks just before my arrival. I brought an arsenal to this fight. A gentleman must always be prepared, and I'm not one to be caught with my pants down unless my woman is splayed in front of me. My grandfather, Magnus Thibodeau, was the first to greet me with a hug and a firm handshake upon my arrival. I see myself reflected in his high cheekbones and square jaw. More than the inherited aesthetics, I have his countenance, his ability to read the field, and his audacity to make the move. Consequences be damned. In my grandfather, I see the foundation of who I am and a map to become greater than his wildest dreams. Arlen Guidry also stands and embraces me in a tight hug. At 85, her deep brown skin is still smooth and wrinkle-free. She wears an off-the-shoulder yellow linen dress fitted to her torso with voluminous sleeves. Her still svelte physique is reminiscent of the actress Jane Fonda, who even in her 80s turns heads. Look what crawled up from the swamps to grace this old woman with his presence. She plants a kiss on my cheek like she did when I was a child sitting at her kitchen table, eating homemade beignet covered in powdered sugar, while she and my grandfather retired to her bedroom. As a child, I didn't realize Arlene was his mistress. They loved beyond the obligation and expectations that come with the exchange of rings. 
In almost sixty years of acquaintance, they have never shared a home or picked out a china pattern. They have something more profound, something deeper than tradition allows. She's the keeper of all his secrets, the keeper of all their secrets, the only one he trusts in totality, the only person in attendance outside of my grandfather that I trust. Arlen's currency is information, the important kind, the kind with the power to topple government agencies and cartels alike. In her business, bribery and extortion, information reigns supreme. Evening, Miss Arlen, I say, turning on the charm that smoothed a bumpy road on more than one occasion. Might I say you're looking beautiful as ever. She titters, like a woman one-third her age, and swats my arm in a please motion that really means keep going. Miss Josephine, I incline my head, a smile firmly in place to the only other woman in the group swaying on the porch swing. I'm nothing, if not a southern gentleman. I open doors and pull out chairs, and when there's women present, they immediately get my attention. After my family, of course, but definitely before the men. Jojo, a nickname only used by the other members, eyes me over the edge of a crystal flute filled with bubbling pink champagne she has balanced between her slender fingers. Bonnezois, Ramon, she says tersely. Good evening to you as well, I reply. Jojo chooses to speak in Creole, a pidgin language that is an offshoot of French. Her greeting isn't one of warmth a person expects from a woman who shares memories and time with me and my family. She raises an eyebrow and looks me up and down. She knows my visit isn't social. She's a hard one to nail down. A wild card, if you will. I read the rest of these members like an open book, but not Josephine Richard. Oh, no, she's a chameleon. Hazel eyes, light brown curly hair, and tan, not brown skin, allows her to walk the tightrope between black and white ethnicities. Her slightly Creole accent adds an air of mystery to an already complicated woman. Her disposition shifts given the right light a questionable mood. Even at 82, she can emit a blinding rage that melts her icy beauty and challenges any opponent. My grandfather told me her chameleon factor allowed her unfettered access to all areas of society. Known as the Magnolia Madam, Josephine is a procurer of women for a discernible clientele. I'm not talking athletes and movie stars. Think more presidents and industry moguls. Her ladies come with a menu of services, closed mouths, and truly unique abilities to pleasure the most deviant sexual desires. Herbert, Landry, Cormier, Boudreau, I say, addressing the other four men by their last names, but my attention rests on Carlisle Boudreau. The old man and I have bad blood born in the rivalry between him and my grandfather. It was further forged in the death of my father and later solidified with the death of his daughter. The Boudreau family had been the proverbial thorn in our side long before I was old enough to understand vengeance. Oh, but I do understand now. To what do we owe this pleasure? Carlisle's southern Louisiana accent, one that we all share, is slow and sticky, and belies the irritation obvious in the ticking of his jaw muscle and the squinted eyes. 
I'm sure we can all guess how you knew we'd be here this evening. He turns a pointed gaze to my grandfather, who takes an aggressive step forward. Not your fight, Magnus. Ms. Orlin places her hand on his chest. Let the boys say his piece. Seven pairs of eyes turn in my direction. Some curious, others guarded. One pair proud and one pair angrily calculating. Le Milieu has grown stagnant in recent years. I walk forward, only stopping when I stand in the middle of the group, making a slow sweep with my gaze. I pin each person with a look before moving to the next. The antiquated ways not only limit expansion and progress, but will make us weak. I see my grandfather nodding from the corner of my eye. Every day we have other organizations pushing back and testing boundaries. Just last week, the Mazos stole three million in cocaine from the ISO containers at the port. And before that, we had to wrangle those boys from the 8th Ward for cutting up three of our girls. We solved those problems, but it's only a matter of time before they find a chink in our armor. And let me guess, you have the perfect plan, Carlisle says with a sardonic laugh. I expect nothing less of him. Carlisle is an OG, an old-school gangster who started out as a low-level street hustler and quickly ascended the ranks. The Mafia's power was entrenched in the belief that there was honor among thieves. Newsflash. There ain't. The cartels understood coordination, but their violence drew too many eyes and made too many enemies. When a hundred men take aim at your back, it's only so long before you fall. The cartel leaders fall frequently, lasting maybe a decade if they are lucky. Back in the day, the smugglers and the ferrymen were the Bayou senior statesmen. They saw it all, knew more, and could get anything for anyone if paid the right price. But there was no quality control. What started as a tight network of skilled workers quickly became diluted and muddied with an influx of wannabes, never was, and never could be's. In a city the size of New Orleans, there was little room for error, and trusting the wrong person was a quick way to get arrested or killed. Carlisle Boudreau saw this and had the forethought and willpower to fix the cracks. He's the architect and default leader of this organization. My hatred of the man doesn't cloud my vision. I see him. I'd be a fool if I didn't. That's why I focus all my energy on him when I say, as a matter of fact, I do. By all means, please enlighten us. He mockingly bends at the waist, sweeping a hand in front of his chest. Oh, I plan to. I wink, suffocating a smile at the red that immediately stains the russet skin of his cheeks. Turning my back to the open yard, I lean with feigned relaxation on the ornamental railing that lines the porch, all seven people in attendance are in front of me with an unknown number of guards somewhere in the foliage at my back. But I like these odds. In any situation, I'm my best bet. We have reached a fork in the road. It's time for y'all to make a decision, but understand either path comes with its own set of issues and obligations. The way I see it, we can do this one of two ways. Loisuellement. Gold or death. The family motto my grandfather drilled into my head as a child, 
as his chosen successor. This moment has been planned for months, drafted in part by his hand. Pops is ready to stand down, let the younger generation fight the good fight and take up the mantle. The saying is known and understood by all in attendance as a declaration of war. As we stand right now, the choices are limited. Either they buy safe passage to exit the life, or they die trying to hold on to what is no longer theirs. It's player's choice. One I would never extend if I didn't have the greatest respect for these people. An unnatural silence overtakes the group. Even the buzzing cicadas quiet in the trees. Grandfather is the first to move, coming to stand before me. He digs in the inner pocket of his starched linen suit jacket to remove a solid gold shit. He rubs the pad of his thumb across the engraved design. A shield split in half. A fleur-de-lis on one side and a snarling jackal on the other. It's the only physical representation besides the small group gathered that Lumilieu's real. My grandfather, the man who welcomed me in his home, raised me after the death of my father and taught me everything I know about this business and world, looks at me with pride. And the boy finally becomes a man. Bon petit haut, bon suo. Good on you, son. Good on you. He cuffs my shoulder with a heavy hand, squeezing tightly before placing his chit in my palm. My gaze drops to where his fingers still cover the metal disc in my palm before he releases my hand. You are ready. You are worthy. C'est blau, prends sa kipo, he whispers, his eyes drilling mine. This is your place. Take what is yours. I let out a shuddered breath. His acceptance and pride wash over me, bolstering this decision and my actions. Ms. Arlen follows my grandfather in this, as she has in everything else in their lives. Digging into her small purse, she removes her chit and walks toward my grandfather. He wraps his hand around her waist, drawing her into his side to place a chaste kiss at a temple. I'm so tired, Arlen says, shaking her head. It's long past the time for me, us, to retire. She sweeps the group with a hopeful gaze before placing a chit directly on top of my grandfather's. They retreat, leaving room for the others to come forward. But no one else moves. Although this scene is truly touching, I call bullshit. You hear me? Andre Cormier points a shaking finger in my direction. This isn't the changing of the guard, he shouts. The man has no tact, and even less couth, having grown up isolated deep in the bayou, surrounded by his family and cuckoo He and his boy are the best smugglers I've ever seen. They know every curve of the mighty Mississippi River and every tree in the swamps, but that skill can be learned. I've had men working on it for some time now. They may not be as good as Andre, but I'll be damned if they ain't close and what he don't know we'll get from that son of his. Dijon Cormier can't hold water in a bucket with a lid firmly in place. All I need is a little bit of pressure, and he'll squeal like a feral hog. This is a goddamn coup. I'll be damned if I roll over like a bitch waiting to be mounted. His fat jowls shake with the force of his anger. 
His old, gelatinous body springs forward surprisingly fast, but not fast enough. I lower my head no more than an inch, giving the most imperceptible nod, but I have no doubt it's seen. Andre storms off the porch with heavy steps and flailing arms. Spittle flies from his mouth as he continues to yell and swear, making his way down Oak Alley toward the cars parked at the property's entrance. With fixed interest, I watch him take his leave. He's about halfway down the road when a plume of crimson sprays in front of his face and a red stain grows on the back of a simple white cotton button-down. Andre stumbles to his knees before he does a faceplant on the freshly packed gravel of the path. The moment suspends in time as the remaining four members of Le Milieu stop in various degrees of shock. No one screams. No one blinks. I don't even think they breathe. Understanding dawns that I haven't come in peace, but action. For all their preparation and secretive networks, it was ridiculously easy to get a shooter in place before they arrived today. I'm not the small boy they knew 20 years ago. I'm a man fully grown and realized, one whom they all should fear. Turning back to the group, I shake my head in tisk tisks. Tragic and senseless. No one else need be hurt. Killed, you mean? Paul Landry's deep voice cuts me off. I fist my hands, my irritation at the foolish man quickly surfacing. He doesn't know I'm a hair's breath from beating his ass. They should have stepped down years, decades ago. I waited patiently. I've proven my loyalty time and time again. I'm a motherfucking general in this city. The streets answer to me. I make shit happen. Me. Not some phantom make-believe as the time has come. I'm tired of waiting for the old man to see my value and pass the torch. If they don't want to grant me the keys to the kingdom, I'll snatch them from their lifeless grasps. Shifting the gold pieces in my palm keeps me calm. Well, now, that is a choice. One that need not be made, I say through feigned civility, lifting the golden chits. This is all I require for your exit. Turn over your territories to me and leave the same way you came. With dignity and respect. You hearing this right, Carr? Benjamin Herbert pushes rounded glasses up his nose. His slight frame dwarfed in a dull brown suit, shakes with fear. But even in his terror, he defers to Carlisle Boudreaux. Look at me, I demand. He can't keep you safe. Not anymore. You want to leave here, Herbert? Hmm? You look at me. I take a couple steps in his direction. Satisfaction wells in my chest when he cowers under my scrutiny. You want to leave here alive? Give me what I asked for. I tap the center of my palm with a stiff finger. Give me the coin, old man. Make it easy on us both. Carlisle Boudreaux, unlike the others, remains calm. His demeanor unruffled as he soothes the lapels of his sport coat and extends a hand toward Jojo who gracefully stands before walking the short distance to his side. I don't take threats kindly, boy, 
he seethes. You think you're ready to run with the big dogs? He smirks and narrows his eyes. If you come for me, you better make sure your aim is true, because I guarantee if you miss, I will come after you with every resource at my disposal. I will rid this world of you with the ease in which I terminated your daddy. We always suspected Boudreaux was behind my father's murder, but hearing him confirm it taps into a deep rage I didn't know was there. And I'm not the only one. A guttural scream rips from my grandfather, and together we charge toward the group huddled on the other side of the porch. The shooter I embedded with the bodyguards and posted in the trees reads my actions and takes a second shot. The bullet, intended for Boudreaux, hisses past my ear and drops Herbert. Herbert. A mild-mannered accountant with a penchant for cleaning money who couldn't bust a grape in a fruit fight crumples to the ground, a high-pitched wail leaving his mouth. Almost immediately, another round goes off. This time it finds a home in Boudreaux's shoulder, knocking him back a couple of steps. That's when I notice men running toward our location from multiple directions across the grounds. They can't get to him before I do. I pull the push dagger from my sleeve, gripping it between my first and second finger. My feet trip over each other in my haste. Almost there. Almost. But I pull up short, drop into my stomach when a barrage of bullets fire in my direction. Boudreaux's men yank him, Jojo, and Landry over the porch railing, while others continue to fire their weapons, pinning me in place. In the middle of the firestorm, I'm outgunned, outmanned, and once again outmaneuvered by Carlisle Boudreaux. The ricochet of bullets grows faint. Car doors slam and tires squeal, kicking up rocks and dust as they speed away. I take in the aftermath of the splintered wood and broken glass and two bodies on the ground unnaturally still. My grandfather's frame is curved protectively around Arlen. Pop, I croak, crawling toward him. The adrenaline from the shootout wanes, leaving my muscles shaking and my pulse thready. I touch his shoulder with tentative fingers. Pop, mon bon? Pop, are you good? He doesn't answer. He's gone. I've lost the only family I've left. Fuck. I choke back panic, gently rolling him away from Arlen so he lies flat on his back. The son of a bitch blinks up at me. His eyes are clear and focused and vibrant with life. I slump with relief, swiping my trembling hands over my face. Magnus, Arlen says, reaching out to twine their fingers. Right here, Lynn, he answers with a dry cough. It'll take more than Carlisle's goons to get rid of me. Tears immediately spill down her cheeks as she moves closer to my grandfather, gathering him in her arms. My God, we're too old for this shit, she whispers. Shh, dumpling, he says, stroking her hair and cheeks. We're here, and we live to fight another day. Oh, don't you dumpling me, Arlen chides, trying to move away from him. He stops her and cups her face giving her one, two, three kisses. With each pass, she softens until they're kissing like teenagers. I stand, wincing at the sore muscles on my back and ribcage. 
Gingerly, I step off the porch, leaving my grandfather and Miss Arlen in privacy. I get a fair distance away before I look up at the starry sky and yell, Fuck! Staring at the small orbs of light millions of miles away, I've never felt so small, so insignificant. He did it. Again. That slimeball motherfucker who murdered my father and robbed my grandfather of his rightful place outsmarted me. Again. I don't know how, but Carlisle's always ten steps ahead. This time was supposed to be different. I put in the work. Most of the men on his payroll now answer to me. That's how I got a sniper in with the guard. It's why I walked in solo, that kernel of information was the last seed I planted to convince my grandfather to take another stand. It's all been for nothing. He slipped through not just my fingers, but my grandfather's as well. I walk farther into the lawn and search the tree line. Where are you, darling? A little farther down the lane, a slender body slips through the branches to land with grace at the base of a tree. With confident strides, the woman dressed in military fatigues that hide the gentle slopes of her hips and breasts comes toward me, a rifle clutched to her chest. Even from a distance, with grease paint smeared over her skin, I know she's gorgeous. Glacial, pale green eyes glow against a backdrop of dirt and paint. High cheekbones flare with feline grace, and pouty lips practically beg for my kiss. But with Devin, it's not just her beauty that draws me in. As a man of a certain reputation and influence, women are the easy part of my life. Power is its own aphrodisiac, and what it doesn't do, confidence does. At least it did until I met a six-foot-tall force of nature with the ability to create and destroy in equal measure. She made me work to have her. Ooh-wee, it was a challenge like trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Once she committed, took me as hers and agreed to be mine. There hasn't been one obstacle in our path we didn't barrel over and smash to pieces. Devon isn't only my lover. She's my soothsayer and hard-nosed attorney. The woman can normally shoot the wing off a fly at a thousand paces and kill a man as easy as blinking. In her, I found a confidant and co-conspirator, all wrapped up in an inconspicuous shell most people never see coming. We meet halfway down Oak Alley, now covered in a canopy of shadows formed by branches, leaves, and hanging moss. That was some, uh, interesting shooting, darling, I say in opening, unable to bite back a sudden grin even in the face of this setback. What happened? One of Boudreaux's men found me. I had to take care of it, but the adjustment cost me time. She slings the tactical rifle over her shoulder. We still have three on the run. Two less than we started with. So by my calculations, darling, we ain't doing too bad. While they're scrambling around like swamp rats scattering from a gator, their territories are unprotected, ripe fruit for the picking. Boudreaux was many things, arrogant, intelligent, vain, boastful. But stupid isn't on the list. He'll go underground, I'm certain of it. Or he'll fall off the radar all right. If not to recover, then definitely to strategize. I know. I just... 
The words peter out on a frustrated breath. Come here. My voice is laden with disappointment, which makes my already heavy drawl weighted with unnecessary saccharine leisure. She walks forward with no hesitation and wraps her arms around my waist, softly avoiding the tender spot she's somehow already identified. At six feet, Devin is only an inch or so shorter. There are no bent neck or tiptoes needed when we get up close and intimate. We stand eye to eye and shoulder to shoulder. It wasn't perfect, but nothing in this world is. We got what we came for, I say with purpose, and I look into her eyes. Did we? She searches my face. More or less. As of right now, over 50% of Le Milieu is mine. I'm pretty positive old Herbert and Cormier won't mind in the least if I relieve them of their chits. I have four of the seven. Now let's hit the war room to figure out how to get the remaining three. I lean forward, my mouth hovering over hers. I need a victory kiss, darling. To commemorate with moment. Her lips pull up in a smile when they meet mine. This hollow victory wasn't quite what I pictured when I thought about tonight, but I'm going to take the W, regardless of the mistakes and missteps. Carlisle's time is over. It doesn't matter how far he runs or how deep he hides. I've uncovered his Achilles heel. Now I just need to push and prod that damaging weakness until one way or the other, the old man is eradicated from our organization. I have no doubt that I'll find him. It's a matter of when, not if. So yeah, I'll take this hollow victory for now because I know a bona fide victory is on the horizon. I can feel it in my bones. Tonight, I'll reassess, learn from my mistakes and adapt. And when Carlisle peeks out from wherever he's gone to hide, his payments will be due. For now, I have a beautiful woman in my arms, and things are looking better than they were a week ago. New Orleans is mine. Carlisle won't turn up here. He'll have too many uncertainties. By now he knows his men are mine, and it won't take a lot of digging for him to figure out that I've usurped his trade routes, killed his cleaner, and taken over his corner of the city. The attack on the plantation was only one portion of a multi-pronged plan. For the first time in decades, Carlisle Boudreaux is not on top. He's a sinking ship, and his narrow escape tonight doesn't negate the fact that he's taken on water and that in his absence, the throne and crown have a new king. Me. Yeah. I'll take the W tonight, in preparation for the sweeter one coming. I finally tracked a loose end I've been trying to nail down for years. Found that frayed cord tucked away and hidden in Las Vegas just when I'd about given up. But finding it, him, after all these years lit a fire under my ass, pushed me to act. Now that New Orleans is mine, Las Vegas, that neon-ridden city located on the floor of a desert valley, is next up on my list. My business there may be old, but it has in no way been forgotten. He thought he could hide from me, disappear in the transient, nondescript faces that change with the wind. But I found him. There is a debt owed. 
and I do plan to collect. Taking over Lumilu was just the first step of many, and starting with a victory isn't half bad. By my record, we ain't doing too bad at all. Chapter Two The Challenge Devin I swing my legs over the side of the bed and place my bare feet on cold tile. I glance over my shoulder at the man sleeping peacefully on the other side. His burnished gold skin is a stark contrast to the luxurious white sheets. His chiseled jaw, Grecian nose, and full lips, slightly parted on an inhale, are softer when he sleeps. I relish these quite early morning moments where we exist outside of the confines of expectation, where I can observe him freely to my heart's content. He is beautiful. He is cunning. He is ruthless in every endeavor. But right now, when his eyes are closed and the lines of worry that normally mar his face have relaxed, he's magnificent. A fierce warrior king at rest, and he's mine. I push to my feet and stretch my arms over my head. The cool air chills my naked flesh. My nipples pebble and goosebumps skitter along my skin as I walk silently to the bathroom. Today begins the challenge. There's so much to be done and so little time to complete every task. I turn on the shower and brush my teeth as I wait for the water to warm, making quick work of removing the false eyelashes and contacts I slept in. Steam fills the bathroom, and I step inside the stall, allowing the water to calm the restlessness sitting in the pit of my belly. Challenging them all now is premature and risky. We have the upper hand and the element of surprise, but like animals, people are most dangerous when their backs are to the wall and their options limited. Mentally, I go through the checklist. Players identified? Check. Dossiers on each player complete? Check. Strengths identified? Check. Weaknesses magnified? Check. Invitations constructed and ready to be sent. Check. Las Vegas connections made. No. Therein lies our problem. It's been over three months since we set up shop in the naked city. Las Vegas has not been an easy nut to crack. We, meaning the organization I work for and the man who runs that organization, my man still have limited to no connections in Las Vegas. The city is transient. People come and go with the seasons. The crimes are disjointed, ranging from petty crime to white-collar fraud. There is no method to the madness. No rules, no guidelines. The exit of the Italian mafia started a free-for-all approach that has lent itself to bloody gang wars, unchecked drug cartels, and casino executives freshly weaned from their mama's tit who think they're kingpins. 
We're standing on ground crumbling under our feet, and my man, admittedly driven, is uncharacteristically impetuous. His plans, normally strategic and well thought out, lack discipline and necessary detail. Revenge and a desire to prove old tired men wrong is clouding his vision. Our vision. Every move hinges on what-ifs and perfect happenstance. But he's determined to charge into battle. Where he goes, I go. The course has been set, and we'll ride this thing until the rubber peels from the wheels. My role is to see the cracks in the facade and to minimize damage and exposure. Protect his six, and snipe anyone brave or stupid enough to take aim. Deep down in my gut, I can't shake the anxiety and feeling of dread, because we aren't insulated here the way we were in New Orleans. In the naked city, we have no fail-safes. We're teetering perilously on a tightrope without net to catch us. If we fall, that's it. We're done. And either he doesn't want to see it, or he simply can't. Now is not the time. Jacal's so hell-bent on moving right now, he's blind to the pitfalls in this plan. I squirt liquid soap onto the loofah, squeezing it in my palms, until thick suds, frothy and white, slip through my fingers. Think, Devin. What did you miss? What did you miss? What did you miss? Nothing. I missed. Nothing. I forced myself to go over the list again. Players identified. Check. Dossiers on each player complete. Check. Strengths identified. Check. Weaknesses magnified. Check. Invitations constructed and ready to be sent. Check, check, check. I've put in the work. Constructed a flawless game that will end with my man at the top of the heap. And I swear to God, should he fall, I will raz this fucking city to the ground. And every person in it will burn. Deep breath, Devin. Deep breath. You've checked all boxes. Breathe easy. I scrub my skin red under the hot water. Provisionally satisfied with the plan, I turn off the water and exit the shower, not bothering with the towel. I air dry so the moisture will seal into my skin as I slather my body with fragrant shea butter. After that process, I wrap my body in the plush robe hanging from a hook on the side of the shower. I swipe my hand across the steam-covered mirror. I tilt my head left and then right, squinting at the woman in front of me. I recognize the surface attractiveness of my inherited beauty. Dark hair, olive skin, almost colorless green eyes. The longer I stare, the faster the polished facade slips, and the easier it is to see the unrelenting stone-cold bitch lying underneath the surface. The woman who sits at the right hand of the devil, as it were. 
there you are. I thought you'd abandon me. I pull my hair back into a sleek ponytail and apply makeup to my features. My confidence in our position, our plan, builds with each stroke of the brush. As the steam slowly recedes, exposing more of my reflection and eventually exposing the curves and hollows of my body, I leave the bathroom with a renewed sense of purpose and self. The devil is owed his due and I'm the collector. Fear has no place in this business. Anxiety is for the faint of heart. This is our world, our game. Our opponents are expendable pawns, an obstruction that needs to be removed from our path. In the closet, I drop the robe to my feet, moving to the island in the center space. I open the top drawer, and remove seam thigh-high stockings, which I gingerly roll up my legs. I follow the hose with a nude-colored thong and bra, made of expensive lever's lace. Meticulously, I dress in a sleeveless navy pinstripe blouse, tucking it into a navy high-waisted pencil skirt that reaches mid-calf and has enough spandex to provide structure, and enough cotton to make sure it moves. I finish off the look with nude-colored red-bottom stilettos. I leave the room and my sleeping man, making my way to the dining room. On the long wooden table sits eight boxes. So innocuous. So inconspicuous. You'd never guess our lives are irrevocably tied to those five-by-five squares, filled with worthless paper and scraps of fabric. Inside each box, on a bed of black silk, sits an invitation. A playing card heavy to the knowledgeable touch, calibrated digitally to recognize the recipient's DNA and the only admittance into the game. Next to the card rests a letter to advise the recipient he or she has been judged and found guilty of one of the seven deadly sins, which is a requirement for consideration in joining the game. The letter is signed and sealed by Le Chacal, the Jackal. He's the reigning king of Le Milieu, the New Orleans underground, and he's the host of this game. New Orleans has stagnated, bad history and blood led him to Las Vegas. His fearsome reputation and influence secured his place at the table, but a blatant show of force is needed to keep it. Every game has rules. This one is no different. Only one of the eight will survive, and the survivor gets to dance with the jackal. Chapter 3 Devon. The eight men that stand before me are identical in height and appearance. Each has a bald head and dark brown, almost black eyes. I have requested they dress in matching black Armani suits, Ferragamo shoes, and dark Ray-Ban sunglasses. Their appearance is more congruent with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company than a typical delivery man. 
The octuplets are brothers, and more importantly, transporters known for their speed and professional discretion, especially concerning deliveries of questionable intent. I commission them in this case because their identical appearance will appear like one man was in eight places at once. Do I need to go over the delivery method again? I asked Reynaldo, who I'm told is the oldest brother. No, you have made plans very clear. He answers in broken English with a heavy Spanish accent. Las cajas deben estrangarse personalmente a los destraneros y abrirse en nuestra presencia. The boxes must be delivered personally to the recipients and opened in our presence. He easily falls back on Spanish, our shared native tongue, although it's a little difficult to muddle through his accent. My grandparents immigrated from Spain to Cuba in the mid-1950s, just before Castro's revolution. Although stripped of their wealth and land, they worked hard to maintain their culture. We like our wines full-bodied and flavorful. Flamenco is a style of music, not a dance. Everyone has two last names, because you have a mother and a father, and speaking clear Castilian Spanish is a sign of respect and class. I nod. Correct. Do not leave until you see them open the package. Make sure they pick up the card to activate the tracking sequence. Do not answer questions. Do not offer an explanation. Todo lo que necesitan está en la caja. Understand. Everything in the box. Understood. Good. I say on a breath, barely containing the anxiety rooted in my belief that we're acting prematurely, that we've piled every egg into a rotted and splintered wicker basket, and it's just a matter of time before we're surrounded with the cracked and broken remains of the empire we're fighting to build. You know who the boxes are going to and how to get them there. Do it. Upon completion, payment will be wired to your account. See, Effa, he says, bowing his head respectfully. I stand behind an ornately carved chair from my place at the head of the table as they file out the front door. Each one holds our future in their hand. Eight seemingly innocent boxes, each precisely wrapped in black paper, stamped with a gold crest of Le Milieu and the image of a snarling jackal. When the last footsteps clear the threshold and the door closes, I sag with relief. Maybe. That's why I don't realize I'm at the mercy of a hungry jackal, until strong arms move around my waist from behind, pulling me into the hard line of his body. In this position, I'm reminded of our perfect fit. At six foot, I normally tower over men, but when this man embraces me, I feel soft, delicately feminine in a way I've only ever experienced in his presence. Two inches taller, he only has to bend slightly to rest his chin on my shoulder. Once nestled into the crook of my body, he turns his head ever so slightly, pressing an open-mouth kiss on my neck. I lean back, closing my eyes in appreciation of our quiet intimacy. Moments like this will likely come few and far between, now that the game is set in motion. Here, there, sure, he says on an exhale, 
running his nose along the line of my shoulder and up my neck. Why didn't you wake me? The deep timber of his voice still holds the last remnants of sleep and an accent forged at the heart of the southern Louisiana bayous. I didn't want to disturb you. This, I waved my hand absently toward the door the octuplets just exited, is the easy part. I'm a lawyer, your lawyer. It's my business to dot the I's and cross the T's. My lawyer, you're so much more than just my legal counsel. You're my partner, my lover, my Excalibur. He whispers running lips down my throat. Gleaming. He nips at the tender skin behind my ear. Beautiful. His tongue trails up my ear. A core of unforgiven steel. You, Devin. His large hand cups the side of my face, turning me until my vision is eclipsed by his lion-like eyes. He sees me. All of me. The beautiful parts where loyalty and love reside, but also the dark places, the ugly spots I try to hide. That cavernous pit filled with rage and vengeance that regularly boils to the surface, eradicating anyone in its path. You are the sharpened blade that I wield. So precious. So fucking deadly, he whispers. Chakal knows me well. He's not afraid to dance in the fire. As a matter of fact, he relishes it. I have never doubted his feelings, his love, because just like he sees me, I see him too. More fire and brimstone, the perfect counterparts, the physical representation of the reckoning coming to the naked city. Between the seductive rasp of his voice, the hard body at my back, and the lips at my throat, I'm little more than Randy Hormones and stilted breath. Tell me, Cher, always said. I open my mouth, but the answer dies on my lips when he trails his hand over my silk-covered legs, pushing up my skirt to possessively palm my pussy. I asked you a question, Devin, and you know, I do not like to be kept waiting. He tisk-tisk, a husky chuckle rumbling in his chest. My nipples immediately respond, rising high and tight for his mouth or his fingers or both. I whimper when he denies me, choosing instead to tease one finger languorously up my lace-covered slit, making me gasp when he circles my clit. Darling, tell me what I want to hear. All we said, he demands. His drawl, typically warm and thick as molasses, turns hard and crumbles around me like sugar brittle. Yes, I pant with desire, turning completely to face him, finding his radiant amber eyes glowing with curiosity and desire. He studies me for long seconds. Maybe he's looking for the truthfulness of my answer. Maybe he wants to see a reflection of his own conviction and decision to start the game. I give him both. Staring into his face, I take in his beauty. Luminous russet skin, amber eyes more orange than yellow. Full lips that always curve with a knowing smirk. 
and a dimpled chin that reminds me of the classically handsome Cary Grant, standing next to an elegantly dressed Ingrid Bergman in Nectorious. I examine him, and I let him see me. The anxiety and the fear turn my stomach. The unmitigated trust and desire I have in him, for him. We have a silent conversation comprised of blinks and stares and sighs. After long moments, he nods, resigned understanding evident in his clenched jaw and flared nostrils. He settles his large hands on my hips, moving me a fraction closer to his body, and he lowers his head to bring his mouth to hover over mine. His breath on my lips causes electricity to arc across my nerve endings and pool in the pit of my belly. Yes, what? Yes, Mialma. I respond obediently. Bon fear. He draws the words out on a moan, stretching them between us long, tantalizing. His tone is laden with the promise of a reward for being his good girl. Without breaking my gaze, he drops to his knees, a proud king worshipping at the feet of his queen. He works the stretchy fabric of my skirt over the curve of my ass and hips until it's nothing more than bunched cloth at my waist. His plush lips part, leaving a wet trail of kisses above the rim of my satin nude-colored panties. Going lower... He buries his nose in the fabric at my mouth, taking a deep inhale. He whispers, I love the way your pussy smells when you get wet for me. Are you ready to be eaten by a jackal? Please, I moan, my hips involuntarily jutting forward. Hooking his fingers under the intricate lace, he rips my thong panties to expose my most sensitive flesh, Needy, swollen, and weeping for his touch. He manages to pull out a chair from under the dining table and set my high-heeled foot on top of it, my heel digging into the red velvet cushion. The first swipe of his tongue is light, a teasing stroke that frustrates as much as it excites. With every stroke, he goes deeper. The flat of his tongue swiping through my dilapidated folds, ending with gentle sucks on my clit. I wind my hands around the back of his head, directing his movements as my hips ride out the wild sensations of this man, my king, consuming me like the hungry jackal he's been christened. He pulls back, looking up to meet my gaze, his lips glossy from my arousal. He tastes like a melon, equal parts sweet and tangy. You'll see how good you taste when I kiss that sexy mouth after making you come. He spreads me open with his thumbs, tongue lashing, cheeks concave with the force of his suctions. And then he nips my clit, a stinging bite that contracts my core. Oh my God. A moan as his fingers find my entrance, plunging over and over in time with the suction of his mouth. My eyes slide shut of their own accord, and my head drops back. Shamelessly, I gyrate on his face, 
plucking his thick fingers with focused intensity. See, 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 no Teddy Tingles. Please, don't stop, I gasp. He doesn't disappoint. His tongue and fingers work in tandem to take me higher and higher, until I explode in an array of clenching muscles and sporadic shivers. I barely register him pushing to his feet or freeing his cock before he pushes inside me with one forceful thrust. He grasps my hair in his fist, jerking back until my back bows and my eyes open. Our gazes lock and hold as he leans forward, brushing his mouth against mine. Parting my lips, his tongue aggressively twisting and sliding it along the soft tissues of my cheeks and lips, and feeding me my own flavor like he promised. It's erotic and dirty and so hot I mule as I try to suck myself from his lips. His hips roll between slow strokes and escalating hard thrusts. The snap of his hips slap against my ass as our scents mix in a hedonistic cocktail of love, lust, power, and desire. Feel me? How deep I'm in you, he says through clenched teeth. It goes all the way to the heart share. Together, we're deadly perfection. It will take more than some desert rats to disassemble our empire. Do you believe me? Yes. Yes. What? His hands tighten painfully in my hair, tugging until my scalp stings. Yes. I believe you, me Alma. I feel him swell inside of me before he throws his head back in surrender, flooding my sheath with wet heat. I follow him pulsing around his length as I come apart in his embrace. I wrap my arms tight around his shoulders and hold him to me, enjoying the feel of the weight of his body on mine, trusting that he's right, that it is his time, our moment, and we will come out on the other side of this challenge victorious, the dominating conquerors versus the vanquished foe. And we're back, cutting you off. Hey, I know, I know. I'm not sure where it's going to leave you off at, but I got to sample this audio. She sent a chapter of it because she was like, here, if you want to just listen to it, make sure it sounds okay. And I was like, oh, I love this. Like the audio one is great. So I'm really excited to listen to the whole thing <laughs> and not just If you guys heard names like Kristen Ashley or any of those that were mentioned, I've already put them in the show notes so you can find them there so you don't have to read back or play back. Yeah, just click down if wherever you're listening to it on whatever device you're listening. Um, it says like details on the podcast or whatever. Just click that and all down below on the show notes, it links everything we talk about. So it's an easy way to get Also, all of it. another easy way, if you ever see where it lets you share an episode, mm-hmm. like if you want to send it to somebody, if you click share and hit your email, the show notes and everything come to you. Oh, no, I didn't know yeah. that. So you just share it to yourself and it all pops yep. up. That's such a good idea. Why didn't you tell me this before? I'm sorry. <laughs> it would have saved me some time, Alyssa. <laughs> All right. Time All right. Well, do. fuck your day up. Make today your bitch. Don't be a dick. Bye, guys. Bye.